I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. I had the opportunity to sit at a campfire this weekend, met some new friends, and I was talking with a gentleman, and he started telling me his story, and it really connected to me as my husband, 12 years before he was diagnosed with cancer, had a near-death experience. And as he started to lay out his story, I just thought the story needs to be told. And I asked him if he'd be on our show. And well, that's he very brave agreed. of him to say yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hadn't heard of, uh, about our podcast, but I shared with him a little bit about it, shared an, an episode with him, and he agreed to do the show over this weekend. So what a brave man to jump in and share his story, not only with me that evening, but now with our listeners. And I really appreciate it. So I imagine his story is going to touch or connect with someone in our audience as well. And so here is Tom Brockbank. Welcome, Tom, to our show. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Well, Tom, I did not meet you at a campfire over the weekend. (laughs) I don't know the first thing about you. I would love, and I'm sure our listeners would too, just to get to know you a little bit. Tell us tell us about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? What do you like? Just kind of basics. Sure. I, I take a lot of pride in, in saying that I'm a fifth-generation Utahan. I love Utah. Uh, I come from pioneer stock on both my mother and father's side. My mother lives on the same block in Spanish Fork that my family first moved to. Oh, wow. 170, yeah, 170 years ago. Different house, same block. And my uh, twice great grandfather was an original founder of Spanish Forks. I used to teach in Spanish Fork. I love the area. It's beautiful and growing like crazy. I know. I love that area too. It is. It's, it is growing. I uh, loved Spanish Fork, but I didn't appreciate it in my youth. And now I think back on it, and I was raised in paradise, really. I can't <laughs> imagine a better place to be raised. But uh, when I was about 18, 19, my friends all went on missions. I didn't happen to serve a mission. So I had an aunt and uncle who started a grocery store chain in Sacramento. Michelle and I talked about that. She recognized that chain. But I went there for two years with just plans of making some money and maybe killing a little time. And I ended up staying for about 25 years. Oh, wow. Uh, started, yeah, I started college there. I'm a graduate of Cal State, Sacramento, go Hornets. <laughs> Which is so crazy. So he's sitting at this campfire, and I'm thinking, this is like this pioneer stock, Utah, 
and he crossed lives with me because right I'm from you Sacramento, yeah, and exactly. I'm sitting there going, "Are you serious? It's, what? Are it was really odds? cool. Fast friends, fast friends. Yeah. We connected very so, quickly. Stomping grounds. Yep. So from there, from Sac State, I started my career. I got my undergraduate degree in accounting, and I went to ultimately to work for Deloitte in San Francisco. So. That was a fascinating experience. It took me probably a year taking the subway to work and uh, you know, wearing a suit and tie. And being a kid from Spanish Fork, I thought, what am I doing here? I yeah, I'm in a big so city. Out of place. Yeah, and it was, it was a fantastic experience, amazing people. And, that, and I think that was a really good opportunity for me to understand just the differences in people and how, you know, how those can be celebrated. So I met people from all parts of the globe, all walks of life. And I think that really taught me, you know, a lot of understanding and tolerance. And, but having said that, I loved California. I felt like I was there during some really great years, you know, essentially the, well, the really the eighties and nineties and even the two thousands some, but I always knew I'd move back to Utah. I've asked my family when I actually do pass over to the other side, and I'll get into that in a second, but I, I won't put on my headstone. Here lies the man who loves Utah. I do. I love everything oh, about Utah. That's great. All right. So now I guess the question is, as you've mentioned, when you do pass over to the other side, it sounds like you've come pretty darn close uh, in experience. Do you want to maybe set the stage for what happened there? Again, I, I know nothing about your story, so this is all brand new for me. Tell us what happened. So I'm in my late 50s. I have uh, realized my lifelong goal of having my own little farm. I raise a few horses and chickens and I grow a little bit of grass hay and I'm just, I love that. I, I'm single, so I live here alone and, and I work from home. I'm a management consultant in healthcare. So when I'm not with clients, I, I work from a home office and it was Cinco de Mayo just a few months ago. I had had a uh, pretty long day. I think it was about three o'clock, 3.30 and it was a hot day that day, so I wanted to make sure that my chickens had water. So just took a break, walked outside, and uh, they did not have water. So I, I gave them the water and finished and set that back in the coop. And then I stood up, and I felt something funny, like a hard to describe, an indescribable feeling. You know, I thought maybe I had indigestion or something. I felt a little tinge in my chest. and. It kind of startled me a little bit, and I, I say this a, a little bit jokingly, but, you know, I'm a Brock Bank, and we don't die of heart attack. We die of cancer. So I wasn't worried about it. started walking back to my house, and I just felt every ounce of my life energy just drain from my body, and nothing I'd ever experienced. It, wasn't, it was different than just being exhausted or, gosh, I just suddenly got really tired. It was... There was a life force that left me, and I knew it. And I, you know, I don't panic. I'm not. I don't really do that. And, but I did call my adult daughter. Said, "Hey, I don't feel right. I, I'm having some pain in my chest, and I just felt tons of energy." My kids, I think, sometimes think of me as being very, you know, bulletproof, concrete and metal. So it was interesting that my daughter said, "You know, go lay down. I'll be right there, and call 911." I thought, gosh, that's kind of a overreaction. And I said, I'll just wait until you get here. And she reemphasized. She's like, Dad, promise me you'll call 911. And then she said, never mind, just text me your address and I'll call them for you. And I said, okay, that was acceptable. And I started to type in my address to send to her. And I, it was just too much. It was 
more energy than I than I had, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. So I called 911, and I laid down on my couch immediately as I hit that final one, and I, and my heart felt better, my chest felt better, for just a second. So <laughs> I hung up on 911 before they answered. I'm like, I'm fine, and uh, predictably, a moment later, I got a call. This is 911. You know what's going on? And I said, I. I thought I was having, you know, some chest pains, but, you know, I laid down and I'm feeling fine and, and bless that operator's heart. I don't know who she is. I would like, I would like to know, but she said, talk to me. And she's like, I'm just going to send, you know, the guys over. They'll talk to you, check you out and probably nothing. They'll go on the way, you know, no harm, no foul. So she did that. And as I hung up with her, I felt as even though I was laying, you know, completely prone, I felt this real tightening in my chest. And I'm like, this is not good. So I live in Mapleton and not far from the, you know, from the, really the city center. I could hear the ambulances immediately, but it seemed to take them forever to get here. It didn't, but it was just that pain in my chest was really settling in. And the time they got here, I was ready for them to be here. I, I uh, was telling Michelle, I have a little Springer Spaniel dog who's so docile and so gentle I had the door open so they could get in, but when he's never barked or, you know, become aggressive with anybody, but as he saw the police and the paramedics walking my driveway and across my grass, he just went berserk. And I, and I think he knew that, you know, my alpha is in trouble and these other guys are trying to get in our den and they're going to hurt us. And it was, it was, that's when I knew I realized because he's very perceptive. I'm like, I'm in serious trouble. So they came in and hooked me up to, a 12-lead monitor, um, just checking my sinus rhythms in my heart. And the uh, he came back and said, well, I've got some good news, bad news. The, the, the uh, captain, he said, the good news is you're not, this is not GERD or reflux. The, but the bad news is you're having a heart attack. And I was still in disbelief. And they said, your blood pressure is, I believe it was 170-ish over 135. And I'd never, ever seen it that way. I, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I'm in my late 50s. I swim 45 minutes three times a week um, and really try to take care of myself. So I was like, this can't be, this can't be happening. This is, this is what happens to other people. This can't be happening sure, to me. Sure, not to me, yeah. Yeah. So then I'm going to put a nitroglycerin under your tongue. They put one in there. Not much happened. They put another one under my tongue. And then my blood pressure bottomed out. And the last thing, when I was in my home, the last thing I remember saying was, I'm going to pass out because I just feel like it was obvious. Wow. So I did, and they took me out. By the time I got to the ambulance, I had sort of regained consciousness. And, you know, they still weren't that, you know, the level of excitation among the paramedics was not that high. But somewhere between, you know, leaving Mapleton and driving north to Utah Valley Hospital down. Greenville Main Street. I could just feel their energy. They were, you know, they sort of had become so concerned that they, they were yelling at each other, not not aggressively, but they were, you could tell that they were very, very concerned. And I could hear the motor of the ambulance, you know, really racing. And I could see the paramedics in the back were just sort of being rocked around. And I'm like, man. And then I heard them start to make communication to the, to the hospital. And they uh, injected me with morphine at first just because the pain in my chest was really getting intense. And, and it was, <clears throat> I think it was then that I realized 
gosh, I'm, I'm, you know, I started out with, gosh, I might not make it. And then I got to that point and I thought, I'm not going to make it. And this is, I woke up this morning feeling fine. How did this happen? And then, you know, a couple of injections of ketamine and then I was kind of out. But prior to that, you know, paramedic who I did go, Mapleton paramedic, I did go talk to him oh, a month or two later and gave him a big hug. And I thanked him for saving my life. And he was a, he was, and he did save my life. But I heard this communication back and forth between the ambulance and the cath lab. And I heard the surgeon say, you know, do not take him to the ER. You know, we are scrubbed up. We're in theater and bring him directly here. And that's when I knew, man, I, I'm in serious trouble. So kind of blacked out there. My consciousness was sort of gone. Um, but I did have one really curious string of consciousness. And it was very logical and very rational. And, you know, I was trying to tell the paramedics something I could tell. But I had this, this again, this one thread of, of being rational. And it was, they can't hear you. You don't, you have lost all of your motor function because of, you know, some of the, you know, the painkillers they have put you on. So, you know, you might as well just sort of stop. And then I just kind of fell into myself a little bit. I was like, I wasn't panicked and I wasn't really scared or sad. And, you know, obviously neither was I happy about it. I, I just thought, you know, I'm kind of on this roller coaster and the only thing I can really do is hold on and see where it ends. And, I think because of some of the medications they put me on, they were a little bit, um, you know, the kind of a psychedelic reaction with the exception of this one thread of, of real consciousness. And it was colors and sounds just sort of flying by me. And I was just kind of taking it all in. And then all of a sudden, and I felt like I was being hurled down a hallway at, you know, 50 miles an hour. It was very intense. And, and in a weird way, it was beautiful. And all of a sudden, it just stopped immediately. And the room, I was kind of in a room, and I was the whole room went black. And there was a, the best way I could describe it was it was almost like a sheet of drywall. It was rectangular. I could see there was what, what I would describe as energy, like little teeny black threads of this really bright, you know, rectangle in this utterly black and dark and completely silent room. And I said to myself, oh, I think that's, I think that's the white light I've heard so much about. I, I mean, that people talk about that. And, and I just stood there in this black room, utterly silent. And I said, I, I think I'm supposed to be compelled to walk toward and even into that light. But I didn't. I didn't take a step. And I, I just said to myself, no. I don't know why this phrase kept running through my mind, but I just kept saying the phrase, my training is not complete here. I just know it's not my time. So I turned around to walk back down the hallway that I felt like I was being thrust through and there was a wall immediately behind me. So I couldn't go backwards. So I didn't want to go forward and I didn't go backwards. And, you know, I have always been a, a pretty spiritual person. And I just said, you know, God, I don't, I don't think it's my time. I don't feel like I have done all the things I need to do you know, for others and, and, and for myself. And that self piece became really important right then. Like I haven't done all the things that I need to do for me before I go on to this next place. We need to take a break. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I don't know what your next thing is, but I would love to revisit at some point that you knew that it wasn't 
time for yourself that you hadn't complete your journey for yourself. We want to come back and we will pick up the story where you left off in just a minute. Perfect. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. we're back with Tom. Tom, tell us, what direction do you want to go? You were ready to have another thought about what was happening after you had the epiphany that your training is not complete. I'm kind of curious about the self-awareness piece of understanding that not only were you not done doing things for others in your life, but that you had more training to learn more self-awareness, more growth for you. That's 100% it. I you know, and I have not, and I knew this prior to that, I have not probably practiced enough self-love, self-esteem. You know, I I think and a lot of people would agree with this. I, I tend to put other people's needs before mine, and I, I felt like that was a shortcoming for me. I think to really understand love in a 360 way, you know, there clearly has to be a component of love for one's own self. And in fact, I think that is the enabler for others to love us. So... Isn't that interesting? You know, I am just in that process, actually, myself, and realizing that even as a parent, you love your children, you do so much for them, and you give them love. And that resource is infinite, and you can draw from it and give it to them. However, as I've learned at 53, this piece of learning how to love myself, I'm discovering that, oh, man, I wish I could go back and do it all over again, because... We really can't draw from a, an empty well. And so I'm really learning how to really love myself in big and beautiful ways. And yeah. I'm finding how to love the people in my life better. And it's an interesting journey. It's a very, and especially if you're not conditioned, I think, throughout the course of your life to look at it that way. In some respects, at least for me and culturally, you know, being, uh, you know, being a Utah and I think it, it seemed a little selfish, like right. to love myself and a little egocentric. And, and I realized that's not what it is at all. It's, I think that we learn to you know, give and accept love based on, well, our parents for sure, but ourselves as well. If, mm-hmm. if we don't feel like we're worthy of our own love, then it's probably difficult for us to accept love from, from anyone. Really. From anyone. So I, yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Tell us more about you're in this room. You're not feeling like you're ready. You don't want to walk towards the light. 
in, in my conversations with my creator, you know, it is always, we're in constant communication. I'm always asking to help me be a better person. Not the best person in the world, but the best version of me I can be. And I think that's what, when I kept referring to the, saying that phrase, my training is not complete. I think it's that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was there. And I think before I move on, because I went to a different place, what was interesting to me is I stopped and looked around, and it was dark, but the energy from that white light, I could see a little bit. And, and I thought, oh, there, well, there's definitely something here. I mean, this isn't nothing. You know, I didn't close my eyes. There was complete nothingness. There was a construct. I, I, I wish I could say I saw my late father or you know, my kindred dead or something like that. I didn't because I was more you know, having this discussion with myself. But that's kind of how those conversations have gone with me. I, I've never doubted God's presence in my life, and I didn't doubt it then. But I was like, it was kind of a check-the-box for me moment because I'm like, okay, well, there, there is something you know, after that. And, and in my physical body, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I will circle back to that in a second. There's a reason why, you know, I sort of got to that room, but then, you know, after I was like, okay, I'm not going, I'm not going into the light. It became apparent to me. And then I saw two heads like below me and I was neither of them. There were two people. One was, you know, stretched out in this horizontal way. One was standing vertically. Their heads were very near each other. And it was me, but I didn't identify it as me. I identified it as two, I referred to them as humans. And I looked down on the one that was laying flat, and I thought to myself, that poor creature is dying, and you can see it. But what is fascinating and beautiful was the human next to him was trying frantically to keep that from happening. You know, and I got choked up, and I'm getting choked up even now. I thought to myself, that is beautiful. That is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And then as soon as that happened, somebody yelled my name loud in something of an alarm because it was so peaceful. That scene that I was looking down on was so peaceful and just so serene. And then to hear somebody in a (laughs) somewhat of a stern voice yell your name, you know, Tom, Tom, stay with me. And I was listening to this. It's like, open your eyes. And I heard it all. I mean, it was all audible, and and I knew where it was coming from. But even in that moment, I thought, oh, the thought of opening my eyes feels like the most strenuous thing I have ever done. It just felt like it was so difficult. And then I I felt somebody, you know, kind of tug on my arm a little bit. And I woke up, and I felt amazing. I felt great. So there was a lot that happened you know, to my my physical self during that. So I'm, I'm going to, if you have thoughts about that piece, and then I'll tell you what was actually happening while I was having that other experience. But it was, it was, it was harrowing. No, it's amazing. I, you know, for me, I think it's kind of interesting that you, you talk about the horizontal you. I, I, when I hear this story, I'm thinking, well, that had to be you and the person frantically working to keep him alive. And I'm like, well, that could have been one of the doctors, but it also could have been you because this transformation that has occurred is kind of interesting that in the process you realized you hadn't lived your best life, that you had the potential to have a better version of yourself, a better connected version of you and an opportunity to love yourself for who you are and it's like, it is interesting because I wonder if that was both you. 
The one yeah, frantically. That's a really interesting. Yeah. The one frantically working to keep you alive was like your inner self, your higher knowing, your highest self saying, no, you're not done. We're bringing you out of this and and we're going to get to work on on living this best life. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I had never thought of that, but I, I can completely understand and appreciate where you're, where you're coming from. Yeah, and um, I, I mean, it's your story. It's your perspective. I don't know, but I... I hear it and I think, well, that's really interesting because it could have also just been the doctor working on you. And, yeah, and your it's subject to that. interpretation, right? And right. I think more exploration and, and really just trying to understand the fullness of all of that. But what was happening then in the physical world was they had rushed me to the cath lab. I remember nothing of that. There was a point at which I had sort of crossed over. And I think that was at the point that I had flatlined. I asked my cardiologist, so technically did I die? And he was, well, technically, yes. Um, but that was <laughs> So casually. Well, huh, yeah. technically, yes, you died. <laughs> <laughs> and he was an amazing man, and I'll get back to him in just a second. I won't mention his name, but he was just a beautiful person. But uh, he uh, was telling me, when, once I got back out of the cath lab and back into my room and ICU, he came and told me what had happened, and they brought you in, and uh, I am a bit of a cowboy and a rancher, and I was kind of joking with him. I said, who do I talk to about cutting those vintage Wranglers off of my body? It took me two years to break them in, and <laughs> he, uh, we, we had a, a good laugh, but then he got serious, and he said, um, he said the paramedics brought you in, and he said a couple of things happened. He said, you know, one of my advanced practice, one of my AP people, was a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, happened to be there randomly anyway. So he was able to assist, but he said all the paramedics, every one of them stayed to the whole procedure. And they were just observing and watching and almost kind of rooting for you. And he said that uh, my, what is referred to commonly as a widowmaker heart attack is what I was having. It was my lateral anterior descending artery, which is the, they also refer to that as the blood superhighway to the heart. And that had become a hundred percent occluded just something about the walk out to the chicken coop earlier was like the final straw wow and so they injected uh well first they made a very small very precise incision in my right wrist the scar of it looks a little like a phillips screwdriver it was almost in the shape of a cross and from there he inserted the angioplasty mechanism up into that collapsed artery and he opened it up and he said when i opened it up that's almost like pulling a dam out of a ditch or a river and your heart just became flooded with blood. And that's when you went into defibrillation and that's when you, you know, basically flatlined. And he said, the, uh, do you know what the motto for VFib is? And I said, I do not. <laughs> he said, it's shock or die. That's, that's all there is. So I guess I, you know, I, I got the uh, paddles a couple of times, you know, the clear and so then you went into normal sinus rhythm, your heart started beating again, and then became conscious really soon. And, and, and I mean, almost like hyper-conscious. It was like, that was almost like a weird dream that I'd just been startled awake from. And the next thing I know, my two oldest children were walking alongside the, the gurney as I'm being wheeled up to ICU. And in fact, my phone rang. I, my pants were still there, even though they were cut off and... Uh, my phone rang, and I instinctively picked it up, thinking nothing of it. It was a work call, and it was, I had to 
one of my colleagues is critically saying, are you going to join this conference call or not? And <laughs> jokingly said, hey, man, I just died like 15 minutes ago. So cut me some <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to make it to the Probably meeting. not going to be there to that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my goodness. It's, what a story. I remember you talking about it to me. I was just so shocked because, I mean, he's just, we're sitting by a campfire and, and out rolls the story. I mean, I'm not shocked in the way that obviously a lot of people have told me their stories and I tend to welcome that. But gosh, what a profound story. I see it as just another opportunity and an awakening. Sure. It's another chance at life. Yeah. Which we don't all get. Yeah, I have a really, really close friend, more like a brother than a friend. We've been, I don't know, we've been friends for 50 years probably, and he has uh, been a bishop twice, and I said, gosh, I'm really lucky, and he's like, you're not lucky. Like, you're really, really blessed. There's something left. That sounds like such a simple, you know, a simple statement to make, but the more I have thought about that, I'm like, gosh, you're 100% right. I you know, there are things that, um, you know, in, in terms of the way that I live my life, and it wasn't bad. It, it really, it was, it, it wasn't, I mean, I feel like I've had a really good life and I've, try, I've tried to be a really decent person. But it has caused me actually to look at the interactions of others toward me. I, you know, I might have thought if somebody cut me off on the freeway, they were a jerk or, you know, and I've been in interpersonal relationships that didn't go well. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, priorly I was, I thought they're just a bad person, you know, very black and white. And I have learned through this, and I don't exactly know how, but I have come to the conclusion, and I feel very strongly about it, that people, and I mean not most people, but all people, do the best they can. Not everybody has the same tools in their toolkit, so not everybody functions in the same way. Yeah, And it has really helped me a lot to think of, of life in that way that... You know, humans, we're we're just, we're doing the best we can. Yeah, absolutely. We need to take one more break. We are going to be right back. back. You're absolutely right, Tom. Not everybody has the same tools in their toolkits. And we're all doing life in our own perspective, right? I have my lived life experiences. Jenny has hers. You have yours. And sometimes when our paths collide, we don't have an understanding or perspective to really be able to understand our interaction, right? Because I'm seeing it from my perspective. You're coming from yours, And so sometimes things happen in life when we're crossing paths. You know, one of the reasons I started this podcast was actually I cut somebody off on the freeway. It's funny that you brought that up. I cut somebody off on the freeway when my husband was dying and I was trying to get, I was trying to get to work. And I was also in the middle of a call trying to get insurance coverages for my husband to get an internal pain pump and the insurance company didn't want to blah, 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 right? They didn't want to cover it. And I, I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't being safe. I probably should have been doing it not on my way to work, but I was taking care of my husband and my family and I had a job to do and I was trying to do it all. Cut this person off and 
they passed around me and they, you know, flipping me off and, and they're so angry. And I've just got tears strolling down my face. And I thought, you know, how many times have I been the other person in that car? I felt nothing but not, I, I wasn't angry with that person for being angry with me. What happened in that moment is I realized I have been the person who's angry and short and unwilling to understand that other people have stuff going on too. And that was really the birthplace of this entire idea of this podcast. So when you told me I, your, I, your story and you've been sharing these thoughts and concepts with me, I'm like, you've got to come on my show because <laughs> you are the exact purpose of the show. What is interesting, Michelle, is, uh, you know, I thought about you know, your show and relentlessly resilient. But the, the curious thing that I didn't tell you is that, you know, I have been doing some work on that myself, you know, with my therapist. And he literally said, you have lived your life in a pretty rigid way um, where so much of your life is black and white and very little gray. And he said, you are now learning, and I quote, resilience, which is the opposite of rigidity. It is being able to flex and bend and move and adapt and accommodate other people. And what that really means to me in a really profound way is when we look around at the world, you know, irrespective of what your views and beliefs and your values are and, you know, the, the world citizenry and our government, et cetera. And I have, you know, I, I, prior to Cinco de Mayo, prior to my heart attack, I thought there's no help. There is no help for this world. And we are on a, a collision course, you know, with our ultimate and final destiny. And I have changed my view of that. There is something that we can all do. And, you know, the most powerful force in the world is love. I told you this the other night. You're like, I need to think about that. But this has become my motto. Love is the enemy of everything evil. Love is the force that can soothe our wounds. It can bring us back together. You know, if we choose to exercise that and and I can't help but wonder if that's what, if there is a greater purpose to me or if, if that's what it is about. It is about, you know, these empirical virtues such as love and kindness and forgiveness and forbearance and long-suffering and charity and mercy. It, it is sort of all bound up in love, love for ourselves and love for each other. And I believe, and I hope I'm right, you know, check in with me at the, it's, in my mid-50s, I'm halfway through my life. I decided I'm going to live to be about 105. <laughs> Hard and all. Sounds so miserable, we'll but okay. <laughs> I always <laughs> told John I'm 103. I want to oh. die. I want to die in my garden. Oh. Picking, picking my tomatoes. 103. Oh, my goodness. That makes me tired. <laughs> I know, right? No, I love what you've said, Tom, about that concept of love. It's just a funny because between... Between recording episodes today in the studio here, I've been going back and forth on text with one of my teenagers who is giving me fits, and I'm, of course, giving him fits, and together we're just fitting at each other over this text, and I'm in the studio, and he's home, and I just about want to smack the kid the second I walk in the door, and I'm sure he feels the same way about me, and I just looked at Michelle and said, Michelle, what in the world do I do? And you know what she said? She's like, that kid just needs love. And of course, as his mother, I love him far more than I am annoyed by him or irritated with him. <laughs> and I said, just text him. I love, I love you. you. I'm I sorry you, buddy. that I yeah. cannot be there for you right now. I will be home and, and we will address your But needs. it just makes me think what you guys are both saying, you know, someone cutting you off on the freeway or an upset teenager or 
I remember very, very early after my husband was killed being at the grocery store. Michelle, we've shared stories like mm-hmm. this where I'm at the grocery store trying to buy milk and eggs with a whole bunch of people who are just buying groceries as if they have no idea that my world has been shattered. Right. And I'm trying not to cry over the milk and the eggs when people around me are probably like, why is that crazy lady crying over milk and eggs? All of us are crying over something. We all have something that hasn't gone the way we would want it to or hoped it would or someone we love or someone we miss or someone we me- we maybe messed it up. Who knows? But mm-hmm. I love how you've put that love is the enemy of every evil and and every trial and, and probably every hard thing. And it, it, it sounds a little trite. Put it on a T-shirt. Can we love ourselves out of this? Can we love yeah. each other out of this? Can we love each other through this? And I really appreciate what you pointed out that seems obvious and yet needed to be said, that rigidity is the opposite of resilience. Mm -hmm. Are you resilient or are you rigid? Because if you're rigid, which I sometimes as a parent particularly tend to be, I want it to be this way, this way, this way. um, Where's that flexibility that comes with the resilience, the ability to balance, the ability to stretch, the ability to sometimes get to the breaking point? We've all been there more than once. How do we breathe after that or breathe through that or let someone else help that? So I'm I'm curious, Tom, in this new kind of awakening that it seems you have had fairly recently. I mean, this is, this is all kind of hot off the presses here. In, in addition to what you said about that rigidity and resilience, how are you now viewing this concept of resilience? We call the show Relentlessly Resilient. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and any insight you have with this new approach to the world and to life that you now have after what you've been through? That's a great question. I, uh, my mother said to me once, I've, I mentioned again this past weekend, I feel like I won the parental birth lottery. I was raised by two really amazing people. Um, I come from a medical family. My mother, um, it was very important. My mom's 92 now, still living on her own, and she's she relentlessly resilient. But um, she said to me once, and I'll ask you, ladies, to help me understand if this was a compliment or an insult. But she said, Tom, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. And I said, what is that, mother? And she said, you never give up. You always, <laughs> you've had a hard life. You, you know, things have knocked you down. You have picked yourself back up. You always bear a smile on your face. And it just seems to me that, you know, he, Career-wise, that's gone well. You know, interpersonal relationships have not gone as well, and you just continue to do that. And and I thought, is that resilience or is that tenacity? <laughs> or <laughs> is sure, it's... but is that tenacity a part of the resilience? Um, the thing Michelle and I talk about a lot of the times is resilience as a muscle. I think sometimes we mistakenly think some people are just naturally resilient and some people are not resilient. And that's just the end of the conversation. Now there might be some tendency toward resilience or certain character traits or maybe experiences from your youth that make you more prone to being able to adapt and, and be resilient. But I love the idea that tenacity that you know, you think of weightlifting, the tenacity required to pick the weight up one more time and do one yeah. more rep, is that not what that, I think, for me, that's the relentless side of the resilience, that I love your greatest strength is your greatest weakness, because I look at lots of my strengths. Every one of my strengths with one twist could very easily be a weakness, which also gives me optimism that my weaknesses could also be strengths. And that tenacity, I think, is a beautiful word for it, how do we take our weaknesses? How do we be a little bit tenacious in our 
pursuit of resilience rather than just saying, oh, I'm not, I can't do that. That's too hard. Not me. That's not my way. I'll say, no, tenacity. I love that word. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to agree with him that his greatest weakness is his greatest strength, and I'm totally okay with it because, as Jenny, you know a lot of my different life stories. I'm evidently dumb enough to just keep going as well. Just keep, just keep going, Michelle. Keep just, going, I Michelle. Just, I'm like, okay, well, so that that's that. Okay, well, I wonder what's going to be next. And isn't that, you know, that's another piece of resilience we've talked about before. Rather than asking why, why me, why this, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. Ask how. How will I move forward? How will I learn from this? What are the lessons I learned? How did I grow? Yeah, Tom, maybe how can those those interpersonal relationships maybe find the same strengths that your professional life has found? How can you maybe shift a mindset that way? How can we all take the difficulties? You know, sometimes... We we get weighed down when we make that mental list of hard stuff we've been through. I mean, I know I'm guilty of it. I'll I'll get in a mood where I just run through my head and this and this and this and I've done this or faced that or lost this and and pretty soon I've got the laundry list of poor me. Yeah. But instead, I I recently had kind of an aha moment myself where I thought, and look at that list. What if I flipped my mindset and instead of oh my gosh, poor me, look at that list. What if I'm celebrating? Look at that list. Look what I've endured. Look what I've learned from from and grown through. Rather than being weighed down by all the human suffering in the world, what if we celebrated the human ability to rise above? I mean, look at yeah. the history of our race as people. Man, we've we've been through a lot as a nation, as a world, countries, individuals, families. What if instead of that rigid approach to, oh, this is awful. This is hard. This is difficult. I've failed with this before. I'm probably going to fail at this forever. What if we were to say, hey, but look, actually, I've I've done a pretty good job. I'm still here, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. I guess I could celebrate those trials. Michelle, like you and I were talking recently, what if I had that victor mentality rather than victim? All the things I've been through, endured, faced, overcome, in a way, I'm I'm the heroine of that rather than the victim of that by simply shifting that mindset. Absolutely. And, Amazing. Well, and I think that's a conquest as well, right? I, I know a little bit about both of you ladies' stories, and there are some parts of it that I know are tragic and hard, but I also believe in the that old expression that iron sharpens iron. And I think in some respects, it's really difficult to look at this way because I've had you know tragedies in my life as well. They're sad and there's a void and a loss, but they have made me a better person. Absolutely. Have, and if help, nothing else, they've me. made us who we are. Yeah. For better yeah. or for worse, mm-hmm. that we would not be who and where we are had we not been through what we've been through. Tom, this has yeah. been an incredible conversation. I, well, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah. So you said, Michelle, you, I told you this the other night, love is the enemy of every evil. And I said, I'm going to have to think about that. Well, I have thought about it, and it's interesting because it took me a minute to process that, but then I was recalling there's two big meetings with God moments that I've had since the loss of my husband, and they they happened the year that I lost him. And one was that I need to stop focusing on a Savior's return, and the message from God was, look, I've given you every resource every ability to solve every human experience that this world is having. So there was something going on that everyone was saying, Oh, crisis coming, crisis coming. And I, and I realized that a lot of times 
in our pursuit of God or religion or whatever it is, and especially the Christian religion, that we are like, well, Christ is coming. And what do we do? We subjugate our personal responsibility into that concept. And instead, we don't realize that we have the resources given to us by a loving God and that it's our responsibility to do everything in our power. And yes, taking on creating peace in the world, which is what my mother would like every year for Christmas, is not really an easy task. But here's where this all ties into you. So I thought about love is the enemy of every evil. And I thought, we are the answer. It is love. And if, Tom, I really believe this, if for no other reason you were spared to learn to love yourself, that is the birthplace of healing all the ills in humanity. It all begins with us. And I think that's your profound message, probably for the world. And it's definitely one that I have been assimilating. I have been processing. I have come to realize through my conversations with God. And I thought, wow, I have had the last two weeks of my life have been just a series of confirmations of the path that I'm on. And I'm going to tell you, running into you, I don't believe was an accident. You are only, you are only a confirmation of the path that I'm on. I'm going to start crying. (laughs) And that this, this is a fundamental truth and it's really part of healing what's gone wrong in our world. And until we learn to love one another, we have to learn first to love ourselves and that will spill out. And we've got to help each other figure out a way to practice loving ourselves. And that's what I'm hoping to do. Wow. Well, Tom and Michelle, thank you both. I know I have taken a lot of notes. You've given me a lot of food for thought. Uh, I thank you both for that. To our listeners, thank you for joining us on this journey. This has been kind of a unique journey. This has been very different from a lot of our other conversations and yet still so profound and thought-provoking. So thank you, Tom, for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for uh, listening in again. We hope if you're listening that you like the podcast. Find us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a like and a rating and a review. And we really hope that if you're listening, you're willing to share your story with us. We know you have a story. We all do. You probably have several. And whether it's big and dramatic or small and subtle, it has made you who you are and can help make us who we can all become. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on social media at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And we really would love to connect with you and share that story. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own life. Have a great day, everybody. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.